So go ahead and grab a Bible. If you have one, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Today we're in um, the final week, the second week of a series that we've been calling The Gospel According to Marriage. And I appreciate Pastor Derek preaching last Sunday. And, uh, you know, really our prayer is that you'd be encouraged uh, and strengthened in your marriage and uh, and, uh, just equipped in every way. Now you might be here thinking, okay, Scott, well, I'm not really married uh, I'm not really interested in getting married uh, anytime soon, so I guess I could just kind of zone out today because this sermon is really not for me. And if you're thinking that, let me just say uh, that would be a huge mistake uh, for you to think about. And the reason why is because marriage points to something. So marriage points to something greater than itself. Marriage actually points to the gospel. And so you may be single today and uh, you may be thinking you're, you're, you're never you're going to get married uh, ever or ever again. Uh, so this sermon uh, is not really for you. And I would push back and say it is for you because the more we understand marriage, the more we understand the gospel. In fact, there's another way you could say it. You could say really marriage is the shadow and the gospel is the substance. You could say it this way. You could say marriage is the sign The gospel is the actuality, what the sign points to. And so this morning, we're going to look at what I would say is the preeminent passage in all of the Bible uh, on Scripture, or in Scripture, about marriage. And it's found in Ephesians 5, 22 uh, through verses 33. This is a tremendous passage, and uh, and God has just blessed us with it. So I'm going to ask, if you're willing and able, Uh, Just out of reverence for the fact that God has spoken, would you stand together as we read uh, this amazing passage? So the Apostle Paul writes this, he says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. There is so much in this passage, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just going kind of phrase by phrase through it because there's just so much richness uh, in this passage. And I, I think it's really easy uh, ha- after having done this a few years um, when we come to a topic like marriage in the church, I think it's kind of easy for us to, to kind of approach this in a way where we're kind of thinking in terms of, wow, I hope I can get a, 
uh, a marriage tip or trick. You know, I hope I, I hope I can get a marriage hack, if you will, to make our, to, so that we can make our marriages a little bit better. And I think there's this temptation for us to kind of look for some kind of formula, right, for fulfilling marriage. Or there's this temptation to kind of think about uh, six, seven steps to a satisfying marriage. And we're thinking to ourselves, man, if I can just do all the right things, then maybe, maybe my marriage will be uh, a, a lot more fulfilling and, and a lot better. And I think uh, behind that, uh, for Christians, especially in the United States, is this assumption that marriage is really for my happiness and my fulfillment. I think a lot of people start there. I think a lot of people just kind of think in terms of, well, you know, I've got, I've got my, my relationship with God over here, but I've got my marriage over here, and my marriage is really just between, you know, me and my spouse, and it's really about my happiness and, and, and my fulfillment. And the problem with that is that's absolutely a wrong assumption. And it's that wrong assumption that really serves as the root of so many marital struggles today. Because what we do is we enter into marriage with, with such high expectations for our happiness placed on our spouse that there's nowhere to go but down. And then when reality hits and that expectation is shattered, we're quick to blame our spouse or we're quick to blame God. You know, John MacArthur, the pastor, he says it like this. He said, many marriages begin in a euphoric state of love and bliss, and it, and it gradually descends at various rates into a state of war characterized by bickering, bitterness, discontent, unforgiveness, punctuated all along by moments of a truth, of a truce. And I think, I think a lot of us can relate to that. I think the reality is, even as we kind of think about this topic today, there are a lot of marriages in this room that are rock solid. There's no question about that. But at the same time, there are a lot of marriages probably in the room, in the sound of my voice, that, that are really, really struggling, and then a lot more marriages somewhere in between. And I think if we can just kind of pull back from the tips and tricks and marriage hacks that, that is so prominent in our culture today, if we could just really see it from God's perspective, if we could just understand what his design is for it, I think it could totally change us. Like, I think it could revolutionize um, not only our relationship with our spouse, but our relationship with God. So here's what I want to do today. Uh, there's so much in this passage, but I want to just kind of keep it simple. And I want to just share with you three ways that marriage is like the gospel. Three ways that marriage and the gospel are alike. And I think what we're seeing here, what I see in this passage, is that marriage and the gospel are both covenantal. They are transformational, and then they're sacrificial. So let's look at this. Covenantal. What do I mean by that? Well, look with me at verse 31 of Ephesians 5. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. Uh, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and then hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing right there is he's quoting Genesis 2.24. So he's bringing his readers, which is the, uh, the Ephesian church, but he's also bringing us back to uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Other translations will translate Genesis 2.24 this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And that word, that word cleave literally means to attach yourself, to glue yourself to another. It means, it means quite literally to covenant, to covenant with someone. 
And so when you think about what marriage is, it's really, it's really a covenant of complete and comprehensive union between a man and a woman. That's what, that's what marriage is. It's just a covenant between two people. A covenant just simply defined as a promise based on trust. That's what it is. And so it's kind of interesting when you think about it. And in a wedding ceremony, we've done so many weddings here and I've performed so many weddings. And so when a bride and groom stand in front of me and in front of a congregation, um, it's interesting because, because when they stand before each other, they're not declaring their present love for each other. That's not what the marriage ceremony is about. They're not here saying, I love this girl or I love this guy and I want ever the whole world to know it. That's not, what, that's not what they're declaring. What they're declaring in front of God and in front of each other and in front of all their family members and friends is that I will love this person. They're making a covenant for the future. In other words, it's not a declaration of present love. It's a declaration of future love. And so, and so that's, that is a very very big deal and so uh, the you know some of the traditional wedding vows and liturgies kind of go like this will you love her will you comfort her and honor and keep her in sickness and in health and you notice the tense will you and the groom should answer I will it's a declaration of future love it's communicated in the in the future tense now I don't have to tell you this because you all already know this uh, but uh, this is this is completely counter this this concept of covenant love is completely counter to what our culture says today. Have you guys noticed that? Because really today, the culture, pop culture says that love is really an expression of chemistry, not covenant. That love is an expression of your feelings and your spontaneity and passion and even physical attraction. And, and, so, and so really love is expressed in, in chemistry, not, not covenant. It's expressed in feelings, not commitment. That's the message of the world. So, so, and we hear it in pop culture all the time. I mean, you guys know the song uh, from years ago. Uh, you remember the song, You Lost That Love and Feeling? You lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, 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 right? Um, yeah, and I think, I think there's a message coming through that, right? Uh, we've all had friends that have gotten a divorce and we've asked them, why, why are you getting a divorce? And they'll say, well, we... We don't have feelings for each other anymore. And so the cultural worldview is coming through at that moment. They have a certain worldview, a certain definition of love. And so, and so really what, what the message of the culture is, is love is chemistry. It's feeling. It's, it's uh, passion. It is uh, physical attraction. And then there's this exhilaration. There's this thrill in the middle of that chemistry. And so, and so at the same time, what pop culture does is it portrays marriage as duty and obligation and routine. And it communicates it in terms of predictability. And so you see this huge, huge contrast in how the world views love and then how the world views marriage. Incidentally, I, didn't know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's interesting, the divorce rate is going down. Did you know that? It's going down. And the reason why is because fewer people are getting married. And what we're seeing is the institution of marriage eroding right in front of us. And part of that is how pop culture portrays it as passionless, routine, and predictable but 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 God's perspective is covenant love is so different from chemistry they're not the same thing 
You see, covenant love is, is different from chemistry because covenant love is a promise to love over the long haul. Regardless of spontaneity, regardless of passion, regardless of feelings, it's a, it's a, it's a pledge to love for a lifetime. That's covenant love. That's marital love. It is, it is a promise to love come heck or come high water. In the peaks and the valleys, right? For rich or for poor, in sickness and in health. It's a covenant that says, I'm going to love you through that, no matter what comes. And so, and so that's what you see is, is the reality about, about covenant. And so, and, and you know, you can have a one night stand. You know, you can have a night of passion and a night of romance and a night of, you know, exhilaration and, and thrilling physical attraction. But a person doesn't have to sacrifice for you in that. A person doesn't have to commit to you in that. It's just a, it's just a fling. And people pursue it all the time. But covenant love is different. You see, covenant love is when a man and a woman love each other so much, they're so committed to each other's flourishing, one will say to the other, I'll give my right arm for your blessing. I'll give my left arm for, you know, what's best for you. I'll give my life for you. See, that's covenant love. That they would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. And so, so covenant love is, is really loving someone when you know their habits and hang-ups and their failures and their flaws. Um, and you know all of that stuff, right? And, uh, you know, it's interesting. When we fall in love, we first fall in love with someone, we're really not falling in love with the person. We fall in love with our perception of the person. You guys know what I'm talking about there? Because you don't know them that well, right? You need a little more time to get to know them. And, and, uh, but over time, as you grow together, you, 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 you really start to see weaknesses and sins. You start to see those things really start to uh, surface. And covenant love stays. It stays, even in the midst of that. And so, and so really, chemistry is, is not the same as a covenant and we and we really can't confuse the two and so we're living in a time when when our culture makes chemistry ultimate and primary and it's so unrealistic and unreasonable church i believe god uses chemistry to bring you to covenant because it's in the covenant where you come together and bond and then that's when your love can deepen and grow and i think that's that is what the world really misses today. So it's so important we really see and distinguish between the two. You know, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany during World War II, and he was performing a wedding ceremony of a student of his and, uh, and his bride-to-be, and he said this during, during the wedding ceremony. He says, he says this, It's not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage sustains your love. Now, what he's talking about there is this, that it's not your feelings that sustain the marriage, but it's your marital covenant that sustains your love. You, you made a promise. You made, you made a commitment to love. And so your covenant promise comes through, and it's that promise that sustains you for the future. Now, that's a beautiful thing. And I think in its way, that is very exhilarating and thrilling when you have that kind of security and love in your marriage. Now, here's the question. How is, how is marriage really like the gospel? 
Let's make the connection here. It's interesting because, you know, marriage as a metaphor is one of the central themes throughout all of Scripture. You read Genesis to Revelation and you trace the theme of marriage, you see it all over the place. In fact, I will share it with you. You'd be amazed at how many times God refers to his relationship with his people as marriage. Isn't that interesting? And then it's interesting, too, that in the beginning, the Bible opens with a wedding, and then at the, end, at, the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, it closes with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I find that very, very fascinating. And it's right here in our Ephesians 5 passage. Look with me again at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And notice what he says. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. So what is it that refers to Christ in the church? Marriage. He's he's talking about marriage, but what he's really talking about is the gospel. And what he's saying is this, that the purpose of your marriage is not your comfort. It's not your companionship. It's not even procreation. The purpose of our marriage is to be assigned to something greater, the love of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our marriage. We are to live in such a way in our marriages. We are to love our spouses in such a way that other people notice and see our love and they're like, God is real. God is real because of what I see in your marriage and so that's the whole point of marriage and so if we begin there if we if we start on that assumption then we're really going to start getting traction uh, in our marriage and so just think about the the message of the gospel what did Jesus do well he left heaven and came to the earth right the word became flesh and dwelt among us and what did he do when he was on earth he pursued a people a people of his own he pursued the bride of Christ Now, who's the bride of Christ? People who respond to his love and receive his love become the bride of Christ. That's why he came, to secure a bride for his own. And it's fascinating to me that throughout Scripture, you see over and over and over and over again, God pledging his love to his people. And many of you are reading through the Bible in a year and you're kind of getting dry. You know, it's getting, you're in the middle of Leviticus right now or wherever you are, you know, and uh, you're just kind of getting kind of getting worn out from it and you're just wondering well, what's what's going on here and you see what you see is God pledging his love by making different covenants throughout the old testament he made one to Adam he made one to Abraham he made one to Moses he made he made a covenant with Noah he made a covenant with David he made a covenant with Jacob I mean on and on and on and it's basically the same thing and you know what it is God says to his people, if you'll love me, if you'll obey me, I will pour my love into your life. I will bless you and you will be mine. You will be my people and I will pour such a blessing in your life over and over and over. And you see this again. And what's even more amazing is is in the story of the Old Testament, God's people are constantly unfaithful to him. And they reject him. And God has every ground to you know, to, to walk, to say, well, I didn't marry the right person. But he doesn't. And what does he do? He stays, right? And he loves his bride, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, our unfaithfulness. Now, 
let's just make this practical because I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Scott, well, this is all well and good, but what does this mean for my marriage right now? Like, we're really struggling right now. Well, let me just say it this way. Here's, here's, here's the main implication that I'm trying to say. Jesus should be your first love. He should be your first love. You see, when you love Jesus, you are most prepared to love your spouse. It's really that simple. When you love Jesus, when you worship him and love him, you are at that point the most prepared to love your spouse. And one of the things, you know, throughout my ministry, I have counseled a lot of married couples over the years and you know, the, the marriages always start the same. They're in love, they love spending time together, they have dreams, you know, uh, fostering dreams, building a life together and that whole thing. And, and then at some point, something changes and they get sideways with each other and then, and then they're no longer living in marital bliss. And so there's heartache and pain and deep struggle. And so then they, at that point, you know, they'll come talk to a pastor or a counselor and they'll say, well, you know, the problem is poor communication. Or the problem is unrealistic expectations. Or uh, the, the problem is pornography or some kind of affair or uh, an addiction or unrealistic you know, expectations, whatever it is. And so, and so the counselees are usually pretty, pretty good at, at kind of that kind of diagnosis. But what they often miss is the problem underneath the problem. You see, the, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And what Jesus taught is what comes out of our words, what, what we say, what, what, what comes out of our mouths, and the actions that come out of our lives come out of the overflow of what's in our heart, whether good or bad. And Jesus nails this in Matthew 15, 19. He just calls it out. And think about how this applies to our marriages. He says this, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And what he's saying is behind the marital problems of poor communication, and high expectations, and you know, in-law issues is really a worship problem. That's the, that these, that this marital, this married couple doesn't have Jesus at the center. They're, they're trying to love each other without Jesus at the center. And so it creates all kinds of problems because you were never designed to love with yourself at the center. So then the question is, well, how do you make Jesus your first love? Well, it's really simple. You repent. You turn away from your selfishness and you turn to the love of God and you, you, you receive the love of God. You, you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. And Jesus moves right in and, uh, and makes that covenant with you. But we also see that marriage and the gospel are not just covenantal, but they are transformational. They are transformational. You know, I, I shared with you earlier, when you fall in love with someone, you're really falling in love with your perception of the person and not actually the person because you fall in love with who they think they are, not who they, they really are. And so it's just kind of interesting because early in the relationship, you know, each person in the couple, they're doing image management. You know what I mean? Like, um, they're putting on their best, they're looking their best, they're acting their best, they're being their best because they, they want to get married, you know, and so you got you to gotta put yourself out there and, and um, you know, get, you know, win the job interview, you know what I'm saying? And so, and so then over time, 
things start to surface. And you start seeing the habits and hang-ups and flaws and failures of the person you're thinking about marrying. And at that point, the relationship's tested. And you've got to make a decision. Can I love this person through this? Through those weaknesses? Through those inconsistencies? And, uh, and so you've got to make that decision. And so, um, and so there's just that reality. But there's an even bigger reality than that. Because you see, it's not just the fact that, that the person you're dating and the person you're, that you're seeing is flawed. The reality is, is you're deeply flawed too. That's the reality. Like, you've got problems, you've got inconsistencies, you've got dysfunctions. You're not the person who God called you to be. And I think if we could just face that and embrace that and, and take that responsibly, then we can begin to see and have our eyes open and our hearts soften to, the, to really the purpose of marriage, and that is our transformation, our sanctification. And so the purpose of your marriage is really not your happiness, it's your holiness. The purpose of your marriage is not your companionship, it's your discipleship. The purpose of your marriage is not your comfort. It's your character. And the reality is, is your spouse is a tool that God uses to grow you and to shape the character of Christ in you. What your, what your spouse does is partners with God to transform you into the person that he wants you to be. That's what marriage is. Now, incidentally, did you know that your kids are also tools in God's hands to make you like Christ? I'm not kidding about this, church. Uh, some of you are doing some heavy lifting in your parenting right now, and I think it's helpful to pull back and ask, why is this so hard? Well, God's using it to grow your reliance, your dependence on him. And so many times we feel like failures in that area, and we just need to run to the cross. And, uh, and look to him and see this, this big picture of transformation. And so it's just pretty incredible. I mean, God uses your spouse to change you, to grow you. I mean, they have, I mean, think about this. They've made a covenant with you. They've made a covenant to love you for a lifetime. They have a 50-yard line seat at all of your weaknesses. They do. And, and even in that, they accept you and love you as you are. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that a gift? And not only do they just love you, but they believe in you and they believe that you can grow and change and become who God created you to be because, because you see they're tapping into that love of God that's growing and changing them and so that becomes contagious to you. And so that's really the purpose. And... Um, and so let's talk about some implications of this. I, I think, you know, one implication is this, that you can, expect, you can expect some friction between you and your spouse. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah, you can expect, you can expect some conflicts. And that's a sign, not that you married the wrong person, but marriage is working. It's changing you. And what is marriage? It's, it's, it's really a, a, a lifetime of confrontations, negotiations, reconciliations, and restorations. 
It's a lifetime of learning how to speak the truth in love, learning how to ask for and grant forgiveness. That's what it is. And hopefully, with God's help and with age and wisdom, we're getting better and better at that stuff. You know what I mean? We're not so good at it when we start young because it's all about our pride and stuff. But I, but I think it's, it, it's, it's real tempting for us to, to get into, to get into you know, just some confrontations with our spouse and just walk away thinking, well, I've just married the wrong person. Man, I made a total mistake here. No, you haven't made a mistake. God's going to use it to change you and he does it in this covenant of unconditional love it's it's the only place where that can that that can really that can really take place so I think that's one implication you're going to have some friction so you so you need to be pursuing Jesus in that so the friction's minimized and secondly I think another implication is all about who do you choose to marry you need to be thinking about this if you're single and you want to get married one day, you need to be thinking about what kind of person do I want to marry? You need to marry a Christian. You don't need to be unequally yoked to a non-Christian. You want to marry someone who is joining with God. They're pulling in the same direction as you to, to become like Jesus. And that starts in your dating life, church. Because get this, you're going to marry somebody that you've dated. So you might as well make a commitment to date Christians and to be real clear and to be real upfront with that. You know, Luann and I are always telling our boys, you need to marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Because if they love Jesus more than they love you, then they will turn around and love you. Hopefully they're listening. So um, we'll see. You need to find someone who will be your most trusted friend and your greatest counselor, someone who will point you to the cross. That's what you need. And so, now how is the gospel like this? And, how, you know, marriage transforms us. How does the gospel transform us? Well, uh, he talks about this in verse 25. Notice what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice this, notice the transformation he's describing here, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, you see, when you think about what Jesus is doing, the message of the gospel is Jesus died to make us right with God. That's what he did. And so the gospel is Jesus took our place on the cross. That it, sh it, it should have been us. It should have been me on the cross. I'm the one guilty of the sin. I'm the one that deserves judgment. But Jesus stepped in front of me and said, I will take it for him. And he said that for you. And theologians call this the great exchange. It's where Jesus takes my place. And it's, and it's fascinating because, because through the gospel, by, by grace through faith in the work of Jesus, I become righteous in God's sight. That's called justification. And, and we, we have a word for this. It's called positional righteousness. I know it sounds real technical and stuff, but, I, but it just literally means that I stand before Jesus righteous. And it's not, you know, it's not mine. It's Jesus got my sins and I get his righteousness. So, so now the father looks at me as if I've never sinned because he sees his son or he sees his daughter. And it's scandalous. It's scandalous because I didn't earn it. I didn't achieve it. 
and I certainly don't deserve it. That's scandalous. It's a gift. Here's the amazing thing about it. When I commit my life to Christ, I'm declared righteous. I have this positional righteousness. But I'm not actually righteous. Because there's sin that still is in my heart. So, so what that means is this. Positionally, I am righteous before God, but actually, there's still work to be done. And that's when God does his best thing. That's when he begins his work. At the moment of salvation, he begins this process of washing us, transforming us, growing us, changing us, maturing us, developing us, and doing all of that stuff. And, and uh, he says it like this in Philippians 1.6. Paul says it like this. I'm sure of this, that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And so God, God is, is working in you every day to bring you to reflect the character of his son. And he, he uses a lot of different things to do this. He uses, church, he uses the word of God, which is why you need to be in the word of God, which is, you know, uh, he also uses prayer, which is why you need to be praying. He uses the church, right? He also uses adversity and circumstances and suffering to grow us. And he also uses our spouse to help us grow into the image of Christ. And his goal is to present us without blemish before the Father. Incidentally, you know, I mean, the wedding gown for a bride, what color is the wedding gown? It's white. Where does that come from, church? I mean, there was nobody that just thought that up and said, you know, we ought to go with white in weddings from now on. You know what I mean? No, it comes from the gospel. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's a symbol of the gospel, what God is doing in every single one of us who believe. Pretty incredible. Thirdly, marriage and the gospel are sacrificial. And you knew I was going here, right? It's sacrificial. So, so when you think about uh, this key ingredient that marriage and the gospel share is really the love of God. And uh, you, you could define love as just this, this tender and passionate affection for another person. It's so passionate, this affection, you're willing to sacrifice for them. You're willing to give your right arm, right? You're willing, you're willing to give up anything for the betterment of the other person. That's what love is. It's so others focused. It's, it's, you don't, you're not even thinking of yourself because you, you just want them to be blessed and to flourish. And so it's really love is wanting someone else's well-being more than you care about your own. That's what it is. And so that's, that's really God's design for the marriage relationship that, that the husband and wife are growing in that, right? They're maturing in this sacrificial love. And, and as, you, as you do life together, you're sacrificing in thousands of different ways, you know, every day. You're laying down your life. And in the midst of that, you're loving each other and, and, and there's joy and there's, there's goodness in that. That's, that's really God's design for that. And so when, when spouses are living in that way, um, man, marriage is such a blast. It is a great blessing. And I think then the question is this, how do we, how do we really get there? I mean, how do we get to that, to that place? Well, I think the answer is, is found in verse 25. I think we've got to go back to the gospel. 
right? Because notice what he says. He says in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now what's interesting about this is he's talking about marriage and he's talking about really what Christ did for the church and what what did Christ do for us? He laid down his life for us. And, and, so, and so what that brings us to practically is this, that you really only can love as you keep getting love. So, so in other words, it's very difficult to love someone if your love tank is empty. And so God designed it so that, so that you, he would fill your love tank and it would be overflowing and what it does is it splashes all over everybody in your life because you are so filled with the love of God that you're abiding in his spirit and abiding in his love every day and and that that is the it's the love that you use to love others with especially your spouse and it only comes when you're loving Jesus first you're worshiping him first so that's why I say you know when you're loving Jesus you are best prepared to love your spouse because what Jesus is is a constant source of love. And so many of you are struggling right now in your marital love because you're not tapping into the love of the Heavenly Father. You're you're not tapping into the love of Jesus. And that's where it begins. And I know you're thinking, well, if my spouse would just do this and do that and get that corrected and get, you know, then I'll, then I'll get traction. No, that's not how, that's not where it starts. It starts with you going to your ultimate spouse, Jesus. You see, Jesus is your perfect spouse. And from Genesis to Revelation, we have a portrait of the spousal love of God for you and for me. That's what we have. And it's beautiful. And uh, I mean, just think about it. I mean, God created us. He created us out of love. And what did we do? We rejected his love. We rejected it over and over and over again. And uh, how, did, how did Jesus respond? How did he respond to that rejection? Did he say, you know what? I married the wrong person. I'm out of here. I'm leaving her behind. No. He came to her. He came to the earth. He came to get her. He emptied himself and gave himself for all of us. And so husbands and wives, don't you see? Don't you see Jesus is your ultimate spouse? Don't you see why we're not gonna be getting married in heaven? Because we'll be married to Jesus. And uh, you know that he's the ultimate spouse. I mean, think about it, church. I mean, he hung on the cross when as a a spouse, we were at our worst because we rejected him, we mocked him, we spit on him, we crucified him, and he stayed. He stayed. You know why? Because he loves you and he loves me. He didn't divorce us. He didn't leave us. He just gave all for us. And he rose on the third day so that we could have new life in him. And I think if, if we could have that kind of perspective, if, if that could be our starting point for how we relate to each other in our, in our marriage, I think that's a game changer. But it really begins with 
Do you love Jesus first and foremost? That's where it begins. Have you been loving him? Have you left him behind? You know, the Bible says there's a really great fix for that. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from that sin and turn to Jesus in love and humility. And then you will tap into the love of the Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a profound mystery. But what we're talking about in marriage is we're really talking about the gospel. And I just, I pray that our eyes would be opened and Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, our hearts warmed to the reality of your covenantal love for us. Thank you for being faithful to us even when we've been unfaithful to you. For loving us when we haven't loved you. So God, would you Would you renew our love today? Would you renew us? And would you strengthen us? Fill us up. That we would just splash in overflow of the love of God. And so thank you, God, that you want deep and abiding joy. You don't want just a momentary thrill, but a deep and abiding joy. That's what you're after. That's what you give. So work, bring healing in this room where there are broken hearts, where there have been broken vows, where there have been resentments. God, we just ask you bring healing today. So thank you that the work that you've started, you'll carry it to completion. We pray this in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen.